0: Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer, media strategist, and health coach, helping you live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm really excited to welcome Margaret Mahan is a fellow Vedic astrologer, but she also does Vastu, which is the art of space and making space. It's sort of like the Indian version of Feng Shui. She is an expert Jyotishi or Vedic astrologer who also specializes in things like finding auspicious moments for doing things, Prashna or finding, doing a divination based on a question you have. She also does palmistry She's been doing this for several decades, and we go into her story, how she came across this Indian science. Um, It was a big life change for her. And also, talk about the wisdom of India around finding our purpose, how astrology helps us with that, and so many more topics. I really think you're going to enjoy this podcast. It's been such an honor to talk with Marg. And of course, if you want to find out more That will be in the show notes. You can definitely get in touch with her if you'd like to get more information about her teachings and her offerings. So let's jump right in here and get started with this conversation. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield. And with me today, I have Marg Mahan. Do you prefer Margaret or Marg? Either one is fine. So Margaret is, as I said, just before we went in here, that she is a Jyotishi. She specializes in all of the different areas of astrology, like Vastu and palmistry, and looking at timing, some really wonderful things. So I'm looking forward to talking to you, Marg, today.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Paula. It's exciting to be here. Can you tell us how you discovered
0: Jyotisha and and what inspired you about it?
1: Sure. I discovered Jyotisha rather um, unintentionally. I had a a partner who wanted me to go to see a Jyotishi uh, as part of the TM movement long, long, long ago. And they were really the only people in the West who were doing Jyotish at that time. So we've got to give some thanks to them for that. I became interested in it only when a prediction that had been made at that first session occurred in a rather astonishing way, a a predicted car accident occurred on the, well, within the two day span that it had been predicted. So that got my attention.
0: And so what inspired you to go deeper
1: with it? I mean, I suppose we would call that the first inspiration. The Jyotishi who I saw during that first session told me to study, said I would be great at it. I said, thank you very much. But in the back of my mind said, I don't do astrology. And then uh, after the accident occurred, within oh a week or two, A woman called me to tell me that there was a Canadian Jyotishi coming to town, and would I be interested in seeing him? And with the car accident fresh in my mind, I said, "Okay, maybe I will go." Still grumping and complaining, I went. That person was Hart Defoe, and uh, at the end of an interesting session, said the same thing to me. Said. You should study this. And in fact, my guru would be angry at me if I didn't tell you to study. I went, oh, okay, And I kind of said, thank you very much. And internally said the same thing. I don't I'm not interested in astrology until another set of events uh, This turning into a long shaggy dog story. So I'm not going to give you the detail, but there was another car, another car accident immediately after that. I was asked if I wanted to come and study Jyotish. And I, at that point, realized that the little voice in my head that was saying Jyotish, Jyotish, that I had been saying no to for, by this time, three or four months, uh, was not going to shut up. And I was likely to get killed by the next car if I didn't go. So I went to the class was, of course, Hart himself, who inspired me. A rather remarkable thing occurred uh, from the moment he started speaking. And my life just changed in that instant. Um, it, it can't really be described. It's a moment of diksha, of initiation. And I don't know that he intended it or not. We've never spoken about it, but certainly he was aware of it. Uh, and that was it. My life changed. Beautiful.
0: Thank you for sharing. For those people who don't know what Jotisha is, I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how it differs from Western astrology. I know this is a huge topic, but it's the traditional divination of India from, yeah, you know, it's very old. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about it.
1: Sure. So Jyotish is, is, as you say correctly, the traditional divination sciences of India, and it comprises both several uh, limbs, we call them, several branches uh, that are important to understand. And it also comprises various schools of astrology that use different technological methods. We're not going to go into detail on any of Those. But what can be said is that it's an integrated system of divination. That is to mean that the underlying cosmology of India, sometimes called Sankhya philosophy, which really is the underlying cosmology for. All of India's systems, even although the Vedantins and the Mimamsans, for example, will say, no, no, we don't, we don't follow Sankhya. Their understanding of how the universe unfolds is the same. They argue about the point of origin, but that's really all. And because it, is an expression of this cosmology, we have a kind of elegant way of being able to attribute predictability and reality to the various manifestations of the universe. Western astrology has some of the same basis of that, it seems to me. Though I should interject to myself here right now and declare that I am not trained in Western astrology except for a very few little things that Hart gave us at the end of my 18 years with him. But they carry some of the same essential uh, truths in using the planets as archetypes for reality. Jyotish goes further than that in attributing multiple characteristics to each of the planets, each of the constellations, each of the lunar constellations, which form a huge dimension of Jyotish that simply doesn't exist in any other system, Eastern or Western of astrology. And maybe it's useful to talk about those for a minute, but let me stop and see if you want to get in some other kind of question here.
0: No, I love this. I love what you're saying. And I think it provides so much context for how complex the the Indian approach to divination is. So go ahead. Yeah. If you want to talk about them.
1: The reality is that Sankhya philosophy provides us with a way to understand the unfolding of the universe, that's kind of what a cosmology is, in a way that makes inherent sense to pretty much anybody who studies it. and. Out of Sankhya, we have uh, Jyotish is built, Ayurveda is built, Yoga Shastra is built, and as I say, the the fundamental platform for Vedanta and Buddhism are both also Sankhya in origin. They argue about the origin itself, but how everything unfolds, they agree on. And what this gives us is a way then of organizing the. Study and detail of the methods that are going to be consistent it's not as dependent on the individual astrologers expertise or even intuition western astrology relies enormously on the intuition of a practitioner. So practitioners who are well suited to it and well trained can come to amazing places in western astrology. But equally you can end up with the kind of stuff that we see in the newspaper columns.
0: Totally. So one of the main reasons I started this podcast is to talk about living in your purpose. And as an astrologer myself I I'm always counseling my clients about that, like what is in alignment for them to be doing with their energy right now based on the planetary effects. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like what's the relationship between the planets and their association and us living in our purpose or how does this help us to live in our purpose?
1: Well, you know, India starts out by saying that there are four aims to a life. And yes, dharma or purpose, righteous purpose comes first. Artha, kama and moksha are the others. Security, desire and freedom are the other three and in india generally we understand that artha needs to come first even although dharma may be the most important and therefore we declare it first as being the most important functionally artha has to come first then comes desire once your belly is full you are able to formulate things that you want and then comes dharma after which liberation or freedom can come. So living in purpose, as we understand it in very frequently in the West, doesn't really have a place in India. Most Westerners think of living in purpose as being able to do that which I want, or that which is going to make me happy. In India, living your purpose means uh, doing that which is righteous within the realm of your capacity, your immediate reality. So living in purpose for the street sweeper in India is sweeping the streets. And you know that they're living in purpose because when you walk past and give a little pranam and say thank you and bow your head just the tiniest little bit. They break out into enormous smiles. They know that someone has seen them doing their righteous work. OK, and they take pride in it. Jyotish allows us in seeing whether or not a person is going to be oriented primarily towards security, uh, desires, relationship can be part of that, or dharma, uh, righteousness of a higher order, or liberation, rather, uh, freedom. The tools of Jyotish allow us to see that for someone. And for North Americans and Westerners in particular, it can be very useful because you can help people either appreciate that they are living their purpose, okay? And therefore, dissatisfaction or other desires are misplaced. Or that, indeed, they do need to change track. And sometimes those shifts are going to be dependent on what the timing is in their particular life path. We have ways of measuring timing. And so something that was righteous, as was the case for me for the first 20 years of my career, practically, 16 years, let's say, what was right and righteous absolutely was not when another big dasha came along. And uh, that other big dasha took me to heart and to Jyotish and to leaving a very significant set of entanglements uh, to do with career. So Jyotish is helpful in either reassuring people that where they are is in fact where they need to be, should be, or that they need to make a change. But the change may not be what they want, typically. Maybe, may not be. But you have no way of determining that. Well, you do, but they don't necessarily.
0: Yeah, it's complicated. And I just want to clarify a Disha is a planetary period. So you're under the influence of a certain planet, and that can shift. And when it shifts, it activates different things in the chart. So that's what you're talking about. And so that can make you switch your your focus very quickly to something completely different. In your case, it sounds like that happened in career.
1: Yeah. Well, I was just going to say thank you. That was a, useful, uh, a use, useful intervention there because, of course, I get talking about dashas and I don't describe them. So thank you.
0: Well, I'm trying to... Um, make sure everyone understands, you know, (laughs) because it can be complicated. Yep. Can you talk about like an example or something from your own life, where Joe has been really helpful for clarifying your where you're focusing or something that happened with a client that you saw like that was really surprising and really helped them transform in some way?
1: One of the with a a client, a woman in New Mexico, actually. And um, she came to me because she was unhappy in her work and unhappy with her body. And in fact, I told her that work was going to change in about a year. And so not to worry about it. She wasn't really inclined necessarily to be comforted by that. And we talked about body a little bit, and it was very clear to me that she had a particular kind of body type and a particular set of karmas around food. Karmas meaning habitual patterns in this case that were not necessarily serving her. And by that, I don't mean that she was necessarily overeating, but rather that she was just eating the wrong kinds of food for her body type. So I suggested that she, uh, do a couple of things, uh, one of which is a very traditional, um, remedy or practice to undertake to help improve caramers. And the other was just a particular food regime for her body type. And she became a long-term client because by making these couple of relatively simple changes, she immediately, she dropped 30 pounds within eight months or nine months or something. And indeed, then was able to get another piece of work that was partly due to that body shift or eating eating habits shift. And her life changed. She ended up leaving New Mexico, getting to Los Angeles, much higher status work. She was a, a director, a theater director.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, that's a good example. And so just after this little break, I want to ask you more about Remedies mm-hmm. Did you know that this podcast has been made possible by listener support? If you like what you're hearing and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash weave your bliss. There are lots of great gifts, including a weekly astrology update from me and a monthly live new moon circle. Thanks for your support. Marg. I'm interested in what you were just talking about with a specific client. Can you tell me more about remedies? Because I know some are esoteric and some are very practical. I I mean, I also work with like Ayurvedic remedies with clients and sometimes it's more, a little bit more on the esoteric side. So can you just talk about those and how they work?
1: The word that we use to describe them, first of all, is upaya. Upaya. Upaya is one of its definitions is method. So remedies or upayas really mean a method, something methodical to uh, help us be able to address karmic influences that are typically we're trying to improve them. So we're taking the ones that are difficult, that are bad and trying to make them less bad rather than taking the good ones and trying to make them even better. And they run the gamut from traditional southern India, Tamil Nadu, for example, where upayas are almost always uh, related to go to the temple and make offerings to a particular deity, okay, and and do a particular kind of offerings. And we find a lot of that throughout India as well. But in South India, it's almost, uh, well, maybe not exclusively, but there's an awful lot of that there. Uh, Upayas can uh, be practices that people will undertake on a daily or a weekly basis for a long time. A very famous one for uh, the planet Saturn, for example, is to take silence on Saturdays, to be silent or to fast. And by restricting yourself in some way every time that Saturn's day comes along, Saturdays, you gradually develop the kinds of mental and physical spaces that Saturn can be more comfortable in. So there's those kinds of things. There are upayas. The, the the one that most people in North America would be aware of would be the wearing of certain kinds of gemstones. Each of the planets has a gemstone. They also have secondary stones, sometimes tertiary stones. And typically those go on a ring or perhaps a pendant and the person wears them. As our mutual friend, Dr. Swoboda was fond of, saying many years ago the one problem with them is that if you don't wake those stones up if you don't enliven them with mantras or other forms of awakenings then it's just a stone and that stone to be kept awake has to be reawoken every week At a minimum. So we have an awful lot of people wandering around India and indeed the planet wearing sometimes real, sometimes fake yellow sapphires in order to encourage the planet Jupiter to come to them. And of course, it's not going to do any good for the vast majority of them. My teacher, uh, Hart, was very fond of, and Mantri, his teacher and also mine, uh, Mantri was very fond of, in fact, insistent that uh, people should actively undertake upayas. So doing something that gets the person themselves engaged in it rather than a pujari or a priest somewhere at a temple doing a ritual for you, or this kind of mindless slapping on of a ring or a black shirt on Saturdays or whatever. No, that that people should be actively engaged in it.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That's really helpful, I think, for people to understand because it's kind of modern, like, we take accountability for the doshas of our life and try to move in a better direction dosha or yes. fault you know the things that are causing us issues and i find that a lot like a lot of people want to escape that part but that's where saturn comes in saturn's all about responsibility so if we don't take it then we may just be suffering
1: <laughs> absolutely you haven't asked me this question but i'm i'm going to try to speak to that comment if i may That is one of the big differences between people in the West and people in India. The willingness to hear from a Jyotishi that this bad thing that's happening now is because of my own karmas. That willingness exists in India and it is much harder to help people into that kind of understanding in the West. Do you
0: think it's part of a whole mind shift? Because I find when people are doing spiritual practice, if they have a guru, if they, you know, are interested in Ayurveda or yoga already, and they've had some training in that they are way more receptive to that idea and to actually taking responsibility and implementing a new paya.
1: Absolutely. And you know, of course, on the other side of it, that the karmas were too fixed, too difficult for the person to be able to get a handle on if you give the upaya and they don't do it. So one of the other things that Hartji used to say, or at least he said once in my presence, the jyotishi also has to determine whether or not an upaya is going to be useful. There are people who are not going to be able to overcome that particular karma that the upaya would be for. And therefore, you should not give them things to do that they're not going to be able to overcome because they will feel worse rather than better. And so, you know, making sure that upaya isn't just something that the jyotashi is doing to make them feel better about helping somebody mm. is important
0: interesting a while to learn that that also leads me to thinking you know to talking with you about the joe role right because that what you just said is the ego getting involved and so what do you do to stay grounded to keep yourself clear you know like if you have a really hard session with somebody and you're still kind of like whoa like how do you reground how do you take care of your energy
1: well, it's a whole lot different now than it was 20 years ago or even 25 years ago, frankly, when I was first doing Jyotish, even although I had a daily meditation practice and had had and a daily yoga practice had had for over a decade by the time I started studying Jyotish. Difficult sessions used to impact me a whole lot more. It's because taking responsibility to try to perceive someone's karmas is, in fact, a a hugely audacious thing to be doing. You know, we're trying to become the intermediary between a human being and the divine God And so it's audacious and needs to be understood that way. Having a healthy fear of saying something that is wrong is a really good starting point. Um, Having a sense of awe about the magnificence of jyotish and seeing clearly how small you are as the jyotishi in the midst of what is effectively infinity is a really good thing for turning the mind towards understanding one's proper place. One's proper place is indeed to break down those parts of ego in the Western sense of it that are not conducive to responsibility and accountability. I think it is a, a function of, of age and of continuous practice of almost anything mantra used to say there's no good jokish until you hit 50. One of the things he meant by that was that nobody is wise enough or has enough life experience to be able to counsel anybody before you're 50. And I think that's a useful thing to remember. Being considerably past 50 now, I can tell you there is a shift. <laughs> Um, and, and in terms of of uh, some sense of acceptance of reality, uh, it's by and large a positive one post fifty. Daily practices of some sort are essential. Your teacher should give them to you. In my case, uh, I have a daily. Well, I've had several from Hart and a couple from Munchie, and I do them. I practice. I have. Uh, they are a non negotiable every day part of reality. It doesn't matter where I am or what I'm doing. If I'm on a plane and I am going from Canada to India, for example, where we lose a day, then I do it twice. It doesn't matter if I've only gone to bed once, you know, we okay, so so that kind of commitment to daily practice, irrespective of whether or not you're enjoying it or think it's doing any good or anything, just doing it uh, is important.
0: A lot of people who are interested in learning more about Jyotish understand that that's really the foundation. You can't get around that.
1: (laughs) No, you really can't. I mean, and even then, you can be sure that your capacity to do Jyotish is going to be that which your karmas are going to allow. That's also true. Jyotish protects itself. It is not an easy Shastra to access. Most of us have to bang our head against a wall for some time before the head softens up enough to be able to appreciate the wall.
0: I've been told not to read your own chart, like to have oh. somebody else look at
1: it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, Mantra used to say that. You see, his, his famous saying was, which I, I've only heard from Hart, he never said it to me directly. For goodness sakes, don't look at your own chart. Make someone else unhappy instead. There's a lot to be said for that. Frankly, I don't know anybody who has studied Jyotish who has not looked at their own chart, who has, in fact, taken that advice. I think everyone does. And I think it's a useful tool as you start to appreciate the depths of the law of karma, because you can be honest with yourself while looking at your chart in a way that perhaps you cannot be honest with anyone else. And your own chart will allow you to see things in terms of timing of events and your own responses and so on that you will not get in anybody else's because you know yourself really well. Maybe at a sister or a brother, you know, who, whose life you also know really well if they're, you know, old enough and so on. It's a miserable thing to look at your own chart and see the limitations in it. You know, if you don't have a Bill Gates chart, for example, but it does, I think, help develop the capacity to look at and understand karma and accept it.
0: Thank you. So I am curious if you can talk a little bit more about what it was like to study with heart and mantri maybe give us some piece of wisdom that you got from them that you have really carried throughout your life. I think this is so important that we talk about our teachers because, you know, in this world today, you know, in, in the Indian tradition, we like to talk about our teachers and honor our teachers. And we have a day for it. Guru Purnima is just for that, right? Um, but in the world today, there's a lot of people out there doing stuff, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and some of it's charlatanism. You have to know who where the tradition is from. So if you could just talk a little... Bit about that.
1: Sure. So um the idea of the sampradaya of India or the Parampara in a particular lineage uh, is integral to all of the Indian sciences, not just Jyotish. It's more closely held in Jyotish. I think it is true that we have held more up until very recently to the oral tradition than any of the other classic Indian sciences. Both of my teachers, um, let me start with Hart and then go backwards. Hart was seized by Jyotish at a relatively early age. He had uh, started studying Western astrology, but back in the early 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, before the internet, before fax machines, even. He used to literally uh, get a phone call from an esoteric bookstore in New York whenever they had something that came in in Sanskrit that looked like it was Jyotish. And he would get on a bus from Toronto and go to New York City to examine the book and see if he could buy it, if it was going to be useful. That's the kind of dedication that was needed to get access. In my case, you know, Jyotish kind of came to me and yet events uh, conspired to break down my reluctance in order to get me there. However, once there... Hart was an exquisite teacher. He insisted always in the early days, they would just toss off lines except that they were true. He would say, for example, in a class full of beginners, he would say, and you should learn how to calculate a chart by hand. Just do it once or twice, but learn how to do that. He wouldn't show you how. He'd send you away. Okay, And those of us who did learn how to do it somehow ended up with teachings and those who didn't never made it back to him. I tell you one way or another, they would be gone. So there's that kind of influence of the parampara. Okay. The teacher tells you to do something, even if it doesn't have big influence, a big emphasis on it, nonetheless should be done. He wouldn't and and never did let people record. And I still don't Because it is an oral tradition, which means that what you are able to retain through your ears and your own handwriting is that which you are supposed to get at that moment and The tradition says we will, through the use of abhyasa, which is one of the principles of instruction, repetition, we will continue to come around to the same topics again and again and again. Slightly different pathway, slightly different language, different examples. But you can be sure if you missed it one time and you stick around, you'll get it again. Both mantri and heart... Could be they both they both were able to transmit directly without uh, words. Mantri did so maybe a little more frequently than Hart, although I'm not sure I can say that. Mantri certainly zinged me a few times, and the zings could be positive and supportive, or they could be really negative like Muntry was angry at me one time and I was complaining about heat and he was angry at me because I had not done something I should have done uh, in Jyotish. And he said, oh, you're going to be hot. Well, I then proceeded to have this is a long time ago, kind of perimenopause. I proceeded to have heat that was absolutely unmanageable and uncontrollable for over a year from that night forward. So that was my punishment for having lapsed in something. Okay, Just this casual little, tiny little bit of a teacher's curse. But of course, their curse is by way of smartening you up so that you're able to come and do the next thing. So people who study with real teachers of Jyotish should expect to get whacked every once in a while, even if it isn't known to you why you're getting whacked. And it is part of how they break down those parts of our ego that are not useful to the practice of Jyotish.
0: Thanks for sharing that. I wanted to do a little rapid fire with you. These are just questions you can answer in a few words, or you can give me one word, or you can give me a paragraph. But so what is one piece of advice that's really helped you in your life? Breathe. That's a good word.
1: (laughs) Pranayama. Um, Yeah, breathe, pranayama. Don't go to bed angry. Don't ever go to sleep angry. What does the phrase living
0: in your purpose mean to you? We talked a little bit about that, but
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know that I want to try to to answer it more than I already have, because how I live in my purpose shifts over time. I think being responsive to what's going on, being able to be responsive to what's going on helps people to live in purpose.
0: When you feel anxious, confused or frustrated, what's the first thing you do?
1: I'm still working on if you can't say nice don't say anything at all. So the the first thing that usually happens is that I say something, sometimes an expletive, sometimes not, that is rude at best. Confusion I just let sit in the back of my mind. I don't do anything about it. I just I've learned not to try to act when I'm confused. That's all. Anxious anxious. I don't know that I do anything differently. I just do my regular practices. I might have a cup of tea and a cookie. That sounds like
0: an ideal one for me. (laughs) So on that topic, the next question is what's your favorite hot beverage? So what is it tea? Oh,
1: a cup! Of, uh, absolutely a cup of tea. Yep. Black tea? Absolutely. Proper English or Canadian tea in a teapot. Oh, nice. The Americans don't understand that. What would be
0: your last meal on earth?
1: Freshly picked papaya and avocado and lemon and honey sliced together into a salad on the Big Island. Wow.
0: That sounds nice. I love that you added where you would be to
1: it's where you would pick them. Puna
0: specifically. Puna on the big island. Okay, great. I've never been there, but it sounds like heaven.
1: Come with me sometime. I love it.
0: So you told me you have a morning routine. What part of it is non-negotiable for you?
1: The shower. Oh, no, sorry. That's the part that's negotiable. <laughs> the non-negotiable is everything else. So the morning routine includes a bunch of mantras, includes doing some stuff at the altar, uh, includes maybe a little bit of yoga. The amount of yoga is negotiable for sure. Okay. And tea, a pot of tea. Oh, yeah,
0: definitely. Um. So tell us about a person who inspires you and why.
1: Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Carl Lewis. For an American, you know, recent person, AOC inspires me. Uh, Oh, my goodness me. The Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, she inspires me. So tell us why, because you've picked a lot of political folks. Yes. Well, it's that kind of time in my life, at least. Swami Dayananda inspired me enormously. A heart, of course, inspires me enormously. And in all of those cases, political or, or governance or spiritual, they're, they're all the people who are, they're intellectually curious and robust. And that never stops just because they have their path forward. They're, they've got conviction. They know what they're doing and they know why they're doing it and they keep doing it. But that does not close them off from the broader universe around them. Dayananda was a great internationalist, for example, as are all of those people, actually. Um, So they're all globalists, not in the economic sense, but in the humane sense of that.
0: It also strikes me that they all have power, but they're not misusing their power. Yes,
1: ethics, ethics
0: and morals. Absolutely. That are well articulated. So tell me something that people might not
1: know about you. They might have guessed it based on that last little part of the conversation. But in my pre-Jyotish life, uh, one of the things I did was strategizing political futures for the now the governing party in British Columbia. It's a long time ago. A different life.
0: So tell us a book that you're reading right now that you would...
1: Suggest or one that you've read recently? Yes, uh, Predictive Techniques in Varshapala, which is uh, the second book on Varshapala by a wonderful man, Dr. Chadok in uh, Delhi. Dr. Chaduk is a surgeon at a major Delhi hospital. I've met him a couple of times. Uh, and he writes in English and translates texts. Uh, into very good, usable English with accuracy as to original shlokas. And where things are not clear, he isn't afraid to say, this needs more research. So he's brilliant, a brilliant resource in English. The only one I recommend besides Hart, Hart and Robert. Can you talk about just briefly what Varshapala
0: is in case people are like, what? <laughs>
1: Varsha Pala is one of those big techniques of Jyotish. It's uh, the annual solar return. Varsha Pala means fruits of the day or the year, uh, the sun in this case. And it's a whole, it's a whole uh, branch of Jyotish all on its own. Thank you. And
0: then what is something that's bringing you joy right now?
1: The beauty of the surroundings in which I find myself is bringing me joy. I'm back on the West Coast and uh, and loving. I'm born a rainforest baby, so being back in the rainforest is lovely. The way that young people are moving forward is bringing me joy. That may be just a function of aging that the the young start to inspire perhaps more than they did. Is there anything else that you
0: want to share that maybe I didn't touch on? I know that there's so much we can talk about and I'm going to have to have you on again just to talk about like time and space and, and Vastu and all the other things that you do.
1: Yeah well i mean we can indeed talk about those things uh, uh whenever you want the one thing that occurs to me which was one of the things that we had mentioned earlier uh was is intuition and and what role does intuition play in jyotish and i had thought about it and i wanted to relay something also that hart had said it's an early jyotish memory actually we were in a class he asked if anybody could see something the, you know, the answer to a chart that was on the, in the board and a woman piped up and said, yes, and he said, and how do you get there? How did you know that? She didn't have an answer. She said, I just just kind of knew, it was just intuition. And this is what it's like to study with heart. He thunders out at, you know, there's 30 people or 40 people in the room. No, you must not do that. You don't want to use your intuition like that. This is drawing down what is called punya. We are all born with a certain amount of punya or good fortune that comes from previous good actions, uh, usually considered to be in a different lifetime. And intuition comes out of that store of punya. So Hart said that the foundations of Jyotish, the principles of Jyotish, the reason that I've been studying kind of like an idiot for the last 27 years or so is because you don't want to use that up unnecessarily you want to be able to rely on the principles of the science and only call on your punya when those principles can't get you there and you learn to discern internally whether or not those principles that you've gotten to are in fact an accurate reflection of the person's reality or if you need to then pray all the planets in this chart all the places that you're at please tell me what you're doing there i don't understand and that way your punya might last till you're dead the problem with people who work only on intuition is that, which is classic, for example, for people who are challengers, cha- um what do they call them, channelers yeah. and intuitives and so on, is that they're working from punya and then they burn out. By age 35 or 40, there's none left and they're just yakity yacketing because they've got nothing to replace that punya with.
0: Thank you for saying that. That's really helpful for people to hear because I think that's the thing about Western astrology is that they're using a lot of that intuitive side and you know, they're doing a lot of channeling. That's what I find. You know, that's why yeah. they do get good results. But again, there's only so much punya. <laughs> In a
1: lifetime. There, exactly. So there's only so much. And unless you know, you've been doing way more good in this life than bad. You can't be sure that you're going to have much left over for the next life either.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for this conversation. Where can people find you
1: online? Ah, uh, VedicTools.com. And they can just uh, make an appointment yep, with you that's there. That's how to get me. And uh, there's an email instruction in there, I think.
0: So I just want to say as well that Marga's is a specialist at timing, Mahorta, finding a time for something. So if that's something that you're looking for, she's she's really good at that. And that is one of the the main things that Jyotish started as, as, a, as an art of finding auspicious timing. So I just want to state that in case that's something you're looking for. Paula, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantula Desma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day and we will connect soon on a future episode.